Um, in the last two weeks, the average price of a gallon of gas has increased about 22 cents now. So if you notice at the Shell station across the road, it's 407 and nine tenths, really 408 this morning. And many of us are now wondering, what do we cut from our budget if we want to continue to drive to work, right? Food prices and postage stamps and college tuition are all on the rise. We face issues with our health or aging parents, broken relationships. We wrestle wrestle with depression or loneliness or fear and anxiety of sorts. Some of us would like a, a job. Some of us would like a new job. Some of us... Uh, would like to get married. Some of us want a baby. Some of us want grandchildren. We carry concerns about diminishing global resources for our children and grandchildren. We are concerned with eroding freedoms that we have as U.S. citizens and the increased threats of domestic violence. I mean, people are just crazy out there, right? These conditions are the seedbed of one of the most pervasive feelings that people have today. They are hopeless. Now, this morning we're continuing our sermon series that we've titled The 40-Day Adventure, Finding Real Life, and we're looking to discover the real life that Jesus said he came for all of us to have, and it it includes freedom from hopelessness. Our expectations in this adventure during Lent are rooted in three cornerstone prayers for ourselves that we would know and experience Jesus in greater and fuller dimensions. Secondly, for our five friends who need God's touch in their lives. And then thirdly, for God's kingdom to break through in in our church and in our community. And I thought by way of getting started that I'd share a couple of these 40-day adventure stories just to uh, stir all of our hope. So Catherine Sandvin, you may know her, um, and Andrew, I don't think I'd see him here this morning, but um, uh, she received a new job at the Lutheran Social Services, and this week she wrote me this note. I'd been looking for a job for about a month and a half and hadn't heard anything at all. Around the middle of February, I applied to be a caseworker for foster care, and I felt like my interview went well and was just thankful to have even had a chance for the interview, interview. but it was agony not knowing if I'd gotten the job or if I had to continue searching. I waited about two weeks and was finally offered the position a week ago. It was such a relief knowing that God has answered my prayer and that he's given me an opportunity to serve others. So there's a great 40-day breakthrough. Um, Another couple in the church family received a financial breakthrough when their parents unexpectedly decided to uh, make an early distribution of some silver bars to each of their children. So that was a great breakthrough. And just Friday... um, Kelly Heflin texted me uh, this note. Hey, Ben, this afternoon I was called and offered a job with early intervention services. I accepted and start after spring break. God is good. Now, that was a job for which she did not apply. They came looking for her and asked her if she wanted it. Now, how's that for a God breakthrough in 40 days? And so we'd like to continue sharing some of these great breakthrough stories over over, um, the next several weeks yet. So if you've got them, send me a text or an email and We'd love to hear about the great things that God's doing in our 40-day adventure. Let's pray before we look to God's Word this morning. Lord, we're just so grateful and humbled at the start of this brand new week that you give us soundness of mind and health of body to to gather together with friends and and neighbors and, um, and just give our lives to you again at the start of the week. 
We pray that everything that's done here today, whether it's uh, the singing of songs with the kids or uh, uh, hearing your word or giving our, our lives to you in the offering, uh, praying for one another, greeting people for the first time, exchanging um, uh, greetings, Lord, that, that in everything that we do, it would be a token that our lives belong to you and that we love you. We pray the prayer, Lord, you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come, may your will be done right here among us in the ways you know we so desperately need. We need, Lord, to be reaffirmed of your love for us and your care. We pray for your your mercy to touch our lives and to break through in the ways that we need. Lord, we pray that in, in the same way that we're experiencing new life this spring, that you would breathe on all of us as your children, and we'd be filled with a new sense of life and purpose and hope in you and in your kingdom. Put power on your word to our lives today where we need it is our prayer in your name. Amen. Well, many of us in this room and those that are listening online as well have contemplated the claims of Christ, and we've responded to the love of God by accepting his invitation to become followers of Jesus. Now, this can happen in many different ways, uh, none more or less genuine than the other. But when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we begin to experience the life of his kingdom. We call it real life. Uh, we receive forgiveness from our, uh, for our sin and freedom from its suffocating grip on our lives through bondage and rebellion and guilt and shame. We begin to move towards wholeness as Jesus restores and heals us. And we are set free from the oppression of the devil and his demons in our lives. That's what we've been unpacking for the last three weeks. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we live in a world system that's controlled by the enemy, and consequently we're not immune to financial hardship or breached relationships or loss or pain. That's life. Being a disciple doesn't mean that all of that stuff just disappears, like shaking an Etch-A-Sketch, where it all vanishes. And consequently, we kind of wonder at times if we're making any progress at all, don't we? We wonder, will anything ever really change? And we can become hopeless. Now, over these last four weeks, we've been seeing that Jesus framed his life in ministry in the context of a struggle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, or light, and the kingdom of Satan, or darkness. He used these words in John 10.10. 10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So we're in the middle of this raging battle. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy and oppress and depress and and harass us and cause us to otherwise just give up hope. Jesus' purpose, on the other hand, is to cause us to experience real life, the transforming love and power of his kingdom. The, the, The harsh reality is that while God's kingdom is already here, it's not all the way here yet. And so there's this constant struggle between love and light and healing and hope and wholeness on one hand and darkness and depression and despair on the other. We're in this incredible tug of war. I'm encouraged to know that Jesus 
actually sees us in this place. He said on one occasion in Matthew, the Gospel, the ninth chapter, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The New Living translates that they were confused and helpless. So Jesus sees us where we are in this battle, and he feels compassion for us, and he knows that hope is the fuel to keep us going. So I'd like to invite you now to open your Bibles this morning, or your Bible app, to Luke 18. We're going to be looking at a story that Jesus told that offers this freedom from hopelessness. In Luke 18, begin in verse 1 through verse 8. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while. But he finally said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Well, verse 1 begins and says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story that they should always pray and never give up. Now, Jesus often told stories. He told them so that they would stick in our mind like a cockleburr on a sock or like duct tape to anything. Sticky. Jesus' stories are sticky. And I suspect that if any of you have ever read the Gospel of Luke before, you remembered this story, didn't you? It sticks in your mind by Jesus' design. But unlike many of the other parables, in this case, Jesus introduces it by actually telling us what it means. He leaves nothing to chance. He was speaking to his disciples, not to the large crowd, but to his followers. And he was saying that the point of the story is that you should always pray and never give up, period. Now, why would he tell us that? Because Jesus knows that we're not immune to hopelessness. That's why he tells the story. He walked among us. And he saw that everyday, ordinary, getting up and going to work or school people like you and I are prone to getting distressed and dispirited, didn't he? That's why he said we should always pray and never give up. He knows that there's going to be days, perhaps many days, when we don't want to pray and we feel like giving up. And he knows that there are days, even when we do pray, we've already given up. We have no expectation of appreciable benefit. We kind of plow on the way through out of a sense of duty and obligation with no sense of of expectancy that God's going to break through. So is he talking to you? He's talking to me. 
He's got my number at verse 1. And this is just so encouraging that Jesus knows and understands our heart condition. In fact, he was tempted in every point like we are, and yet without sin. So I've got to believe that there were days when Jesus was tempted to hopelessness as well. He was ready to give up. And so his word to us when we are hopeless, right out of the gates, always pray, never give up. Verse 2 and 3. There was a judge in the city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people, and a widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. Now, according to the Old Testament law, the judge's responsibilities were twofold, to fear God and to administer justice. They were supposed to especially defend the oppressed and the poor. And in the law, the widow would have been the ultimate example, the quintessential marginalized, oppressed person. And so the, the, the story says that she, um, uh, uh, as the story goes, it, it, what we, we see behind the scenes is that in that culture, it, a, a, a widow would have likely not had any means of support, uh, no hope for a preferable future. She would certainly not been able to afford a bribe, as was often the way things worked. We could infer from the story that the widow's opponent is perhaps threatening something like taking her land in payment for a debt that she owes, but she's desperate. Now, this judge had no respect for the authority of God, didn't fear God, and neither did he care for the people that he was supposed to represent. But the widow was appealing to the very system that was designed for her protection, to no avail, like many of us. We feel that, that we're imprisoned in a system that's working against us. So she came to the judge repeatedly asking for justice over and over. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that the judge ignored her for a while, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God, I don't care about people, but this woman is driving me nuts, crazy literally. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. So now here's the judge, not motivated by a fear of the Lord, nor respect for the woman, or a desire to faithfully discharge his responsibilities for the people, or nor does he care for, for anyone. But in order to free himself from her constant haranguing, the judge decides to give the widow what she's asking. So then in verses 6 to 8, the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a, a decision, a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he'll grant justice to them quickly. Now, numbers of Bible expositors through the years have told us that what this parable really means is that we've got to keep bombarding the gates of heaven repeatedly and insistently with importunity that so that we will finally wear God out with our prayers and he'll give us what we're asking. But I think that it's a parable of contrast all the way through. Uh, the strength of the story is the contrast between the unjust judge and God as the righteous judge. Now, it's a, a very typical Jewish literary construction that uses what's called the how much more argument. If an unjust judge who neither feared God nor cared for people uh, can dispense justice, how much more will God, the righteous judge of all the earth, who is the defender 
of the oppressed and the marginalized and then the widows, how much more will he do? The strength of the argument is if that crooked guy gave in to save his own miserable life from being bruised, how much more will God, the, the gracious, loving, merciful judge, grant mercy and justice quickly? God does not need persuading or begging or haranguing, nor does he want us to particularly worry in our requests. When we cry out, he hears. Verse 8, but when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Now, Jesus ends with what can appear to be a sharp right turn. You kind of think, wait a minute, what's that have to do with anything? It's not a right turn at all if we follow his logic. You see, all the way through the Old Testament and through the teaching of Jesus as well, uh, God promises to be faithful and act on behalf of and to vindicate his people by his actions in the present moment and eventually when his kingdom comes in full on the day of his return. And so it is with an eye for the completion of the kingdom. That's where the phrase, when the Son of Man returns to earth, comes in. It's with an eye to the eventual completion of the kingdom that Jesus is asking, at that time, who will have faith? And so I think Jesus is actually encouraging us to persevere until the end, the end of time, when the kingdom is complete. It's not hopeless people, Jesus is saying, because I'm literally coming back at the end of this present evil age and I'm going to set everything to right. I will administrate total and complete justice at the end of time. You're going to receive a few benefits of the kingdom now because it's already here. But it's coming in full on the day of my return when I will set everything that has been broken and marred through sin back to the way God originally intended. And so that's why you should pray and never give up. Ultimate justice is our great hope. You see, if this life was all there is, how discouraging that would be. Because when in this time of the overlap of two kingdoms, when it's already here and not yet all the way here, and we don't see everything we want, it would be terribly dispiriting to know that that's all we've ever got to offer. But Jesus is saying, you ought to pray and never give up, because ultimately, God as the righteous judge is going to make everything right. And for me, that's motivating. So in light of this hope-filled story, I'd like to share in the next part of this message three tips for all of us uh, by way of application in order to make the real life that Jesus said is ours uh, more accessible and, and experienced more completely. In this broken, sinful world where the battle rages, here's three things that I think we should take away from Jesus' powerful story. The first is just pray simply about everything, about everything and, and anything that feeds and fuels your hopelessness. Pray about it. Jesus invites you to always pray, always pray, not just sometimes pray, or pray and then quit, but always pray. And prayer is 
actually simple and uncomplicated when we break it down. You just talk to God as if you're talking to a great friend. You, you don't have to use special words or phrases or formulas to memorize. There's no special posture uh, to maintain, no special clothes. You don't have to wear linen underwear or anything like that. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to go to a holy place, a shrine or a church or a, a temple or uh, an altar. There's no incense to burn, no special candles you have to light, no special music you have to have playing in the background. Prayer is simple and uncomplicated. It's directing our thoughts and words to God and conversing with Him about the things that we're doing together. That's what prayer is, in my mind. Directing our thoughts and words to God and conversing with Him about the work that we're engaged in together. Now, that's not just mental therapy. Jesus didn't say to pray so we feel good about having talked to Him uh, him about our our needs. Now, there is some degree of uh, of therapy. There's therapeutic value in prayer. But, but at the end, it's dialoguing with God and asking Him to intervene in our hopeless situations. Dialoguing. We talk and we listen. Now, on so many other occasions, Jesus encouraged us with invitations to pray that at their reading almost seem unbelievable. For instance, uh, there's a text in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus said this, Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish... Do you give him a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? On still another occasion, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Now, he didn't say that because on other occasions he didn't tell us the truth. The King James reads, Verily, verily, I say unto you. What he, it, was, it was a way of arresting our attention. Like, really listen to this, because this is really important. Not because other things were untrue. So you get that. I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may it be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you'll receive it. And yet on another occasion in John's Gospel, we read these powerful promises in John 14, 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I'll do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. And these are just a few of the remarkable, many remarkable invitations that Jesus offers to us as his followers to pray in order to dispense the power, dispel the power of hopelessness. And they are sincere invitations. They're sincere, first, because they're his word. They they are his eternal, unchanging, reliable, true, never ceasing to have power promises. And secondly, they're sincere because they're rooted in Christ's character. 
Do you notice that in that Matthew 7 text, he said, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? There's that typical argument again. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those that ask? Jesus says, my character will, will not offer you a substitute, a snake for, or a stone for bread, nor will you get something harmful, a snake for a fish. My word can be counted on. I'll give you good gifts if you ask. And so we could say God's character as a loving and compassionate and merciful father guarantees that his invitations to us as his children are sincere. He meant what he said. And there's nothing too big, there's nothing too small, nothing too difficult, nothing too complex, nothing too overwhelming for God to answer when we pray. There's no situation of hopelessness that's beyond his reach, beyond the reach of these promises. So the first tip I want to share with you is pray simply. Secondly, second tip, think truthfully. Now, all of us know that a lot of the spiritual battle that we have is in our mind, isn't it? So when I'm at the end of my resources and abilities, when I'm feeling hopeless and sometimes in despair, I frequently let my mind wander. And at at that time, it embraces questions and lies about myself, uh, about God, the Bible, and life. Maybe you can identify. I begin to wonder, are, are those promises that I just read really sincere? Did he really mean that? Why have my prayers gone unanswered? Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. Maybe I'm being judged because I'm sinful. I think, what if God is nowhere to be found or isn't really listening? Or is God really good? Maybe he's capricious and he kind of rolls the dice to see whose prayers get answered or not, because that's the way it appears that it operates. Is is God really powerful enough to do what I'm asking? Maybe maybe it's not predestined and therefore can't take place. Or what if God just doesn't know what he's doing? Maybe it's out of control. And the list goes on and on. And it's in these moments where I have to realize I've got to align my thinking with the word of God. I've got to think truthfully. So the truth is that Jesus is always there for us, even when we can't see him. You see, the very last words that Jesus uttered before he returned to the Father were, be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So where is Jesus in our hopelessness? He's right there. The truth is, Jesus is always loving, even though the circumstances of my life may scream that he is cruel. See, when the devil uses despair to tempt me to think that Jesus isn't good, I have to go back to the foot of the cross, and I behold the wonder that God the Father would send his Son to die for me. And then I begin to count the blessings in my life. And through those two actions, I realize again, Jesus, you are always loving despite the circumstances of my life. I'm convinced once again of his inexhaustible and never-ending love for me. The truth is that Jesus is always powerful enough to do 
whatever he wants. The Bible declares that Jesus is the Lord of all the earth. That is, he is the world's ruler. The world and everything in it belongs to him. He's at the right hand of the Father, overseeing creation, ruling and reigning. The prophet Daniel said that he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. The truth is that Jesus is all wise and he knows just how to administer his love and his power in our lives at the right time. And so we've got to align our thinking with the word of God. We've got to think truthfully by reading it, by soaking in it, by memorizing it, and allowing it to form our convictions about ourselves and God and life. Let me illustrate in, in, from our own life. The most, perhaps the most violent storm of, of my wife Tina in, in my life uh, launched on December the 19th in 2006 when Tina was diagnosed with uterine cancer. On the day of that diagnosis, we were both absolutely overly uh, uh, overwhelmed. Anyone who receives the cancer diagnosis, the C word, knows exactly what I'm talking about. We were overwhelmed with fear, panic, anxious thoughts about her premature death. The devil, the devil paraded in my mind a, a picture of her funeral in our church. And, uh, you know, that we were gonna, she was gonna miss out on the growing up of our children and perhaps them getting married and experiencing grandchildren and the future, the preferable future that we'd imagine. Then there were many medical tests that were followed by weeks of uncertainty as we awaited the results, followed by a complete hysterectomy and then wrestling through the decision of whether we should follow that with chemotherapy and radiation. Needless to say, in this storm of our lives, we were hopeless in many ways. Uh, the, the word cancer can be almost a death sentence when it comes to you. And so we prayed like crazy, and we asked all of our friends to pray like crazy. We asked the church to pray like crazy. But what we found most helpful in this storm of our lives, in fighting back the lies and questions from the enemy that exalted themselves against the knowledge of God, was to continually go back to Jesus and the truth of his word. It was an anchor for us in this time. His word that's forever settled in heaven. We had to go back to the Bible to realize once again that, God, you're good. You are with us. You promised you'd never leave us or forsake us. You have power to heal and sustain. You are filled with gracious love and mercy and compassion. You, you have a certain and preferable future for us. You are present in us through the Holy Spirit. We had to just keep soaking ourselves in thinking truthfully. Now, thankfully, uh, my wife made a miraculous uh, recovery after surgery. We elected to trust God through no chemotherapy or radiation. She, over the next years, continued to regain strength and physical stamina. And now, after five years, she remains cancer-free but it's not been without a battle of thinking truthfully. Pray simply, think truthfully. The third tip, and I'll conclude with this one, is to wait expectantly. If an oppressed, marginalized widow could eventually receive justice from an unjust, uncaring judge, 
how much more will you as God's very son or daughter receive justice from him? How much more? We have to wait expectantly, though, because we don't know how long quickly is. And almost always our definition of quick isn't going to be his. Now, this is challenging because when the answers to our prayers are delayed, we're often tempted to conclude that God meant no. But as a word of encouragement, I want to remind you today that delay is not denial. Delay is not denial. It merely provides us an opportunity to trust Jesus. Trust his love, his care, his compassion, his concern for us as his children, his wisdom and his power to dispense it at the right times in the right ways. You see, life in God's kingdom in this sense isn't like an algebra equation. It's not formula. One part prayer and one part faith equals two parts answer for your hopelessness. It's just way more complex than that. And so when the answers to our prayer don't come immediately, God is doing a whole lot more than we can even imagine in that time. And in that time, he wants us to trust him, to have faith, or to rely upon him. That's what that means. To take him at his word. And so as we trust him to bring the real life of his kingdom to us, we can expect that there'll be peace that surrounds and and keeps us. We We can hope for his love to sustain us. We can hope for his body, our brothers and sisters, to to support and encourage us. We can hope for his kingdom to break through at any moment. And we can hope finally for the day of his return when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, administering justice to set the world right forever. So, Lord, we just thank you that you've encouraged us today through this powerful story that we should pray and never give up. And I pray, God, that even today, despite the hopeless situations that every single one of us in this room faces, that we'd take your word to heart and that you'd breathe on it by your Holy Spirit and you'd even release gifts of faith to take you at your word and trust you as we pray, as we think truthfully, and as we wait for you expectantly for your kingdom to come. And now, Lord, as we give you our gifts in the offering and we raise our hearts and hands in song, we pray that you take these for what they are, tokens that say we love and trust you. In your name, amen.